share their art, and that's beautiful. So a few thoughts before I get into the news. And I think there's a theme today, and that is uh, folks actually standing up for when they see wrongdoing and kind of calling people out on their shit, which I think is wonderful and needs to happen more often. If that had happened since the beginning, we probably wouldn't be in this mess and the earth wouldn't be uh, totally destroyed. I was thinking about that. Uh, I was in the Botanical Gardens yesterday in San Francisco at Golden Gate Park, and it's beautiful, and it's it's free if you're a resident of San Francisco, which is wonderful, and there's a lot of different flowers and butterflies, and it was just very peaceful there, and it feels kind of unlike a lot of other places where... You know, as soon as one leaves the house, there's just a lot of stress to deal with, certainly. Uh, and even entering the park, uh, I was there with a friend of mine, and we were crossing <laughs> we were crossing the street, and there was this guy in a BMW. So first of all, I was already definitely biased. Um, but he was speeding, and he like almost hit us, and then he got angry that he almost hit us. And uh, and he was just like kind of yelling, and uh, he I looked on the back of his bumper, and he had a, a bumper sticker that said, Go Army. And in the back of his, his car, he had these big, you know, shopping bags from Target. And, you know, I've shopped at Target. I'm not, you know, it's not, it's just kind of like putting together this whole picture of who this person was and so angry. And he was in the car alone and he was driving through the park and not like actually through the park. Like he was like driving on the street through the park, but it was still like if one, one would think maybe you might be able to avoid getting hit by a car if you're walking down, you know through the park and that was not the case and he got really angry and i was thinking how often that is just like on a day-to-day the folks who kind of come into situations ready to fight and if anything uh you know my friend and i should have been angry and we were angry certainly where it's like okay here's someone who is in a vehicle who is not who's just speeding and not really paying attention and it's like the folks who kind of come in with all this aggression, they're still the ones who are angry. And it's like, wait a second, we should be the ones who are angry. We should be the one. And even we were just kind of like, what are you What are you doing? And he was just so upset. Maybe he was going somewhere. We don't know this story. We don't. Uh, but this seems to be like a common theme quite often is that the folks who kind of are the ones instigating uh, the, the anger and instigating the hatred. Uh, clearly something's going on with this person. Uh, enough so that I'm talking about it on the on the show, and it's just I feel very representative of a lot of folks who kind of come to the situation and end up provoking, yeah, provoking people, and then when you kind of call them out on it or say, hey, what you did kind of was hurtful or scary, then they get angry and defensive, and I understand that. It's just, uh, oh, imagine if we didn't have to deal with that. It's like this minor thing and yet it's like it's such it's so minor yet the you know the next day i'm still talking about it and thinking about it and it's obviously not the first time it's happened it won't be the last time it's happened and it's such a small thing but it's people being entitled and just kind of taking up space in a really aggressive way and it's disgusting and i think it's really representative of just how the world has kind of progressed in the way it has with folks not being called out on their shit and then again, you know, I'm not in a car. What am I going to do? Um, you know, we're pedestrians, certainly. So how does one necessarily fight back if someone, the aggressor, has, is, they're, like, they're safe in their car in a way. They're protected in a way. And yet they're the ones causing the trouble. So that was just something minor I wanted to discuss. And But I recommend going to the botanical gardens and just getting out to nature, which is a, a privilege, and it shouldn't be. Uh, everyone should be able to have access to to fresh air and to flowers and just imagine if that was more accessible to everyone and it was easier for folks to get to and if it was like affordable and free and imagine if more of the world was like that uh, instead of just being uh, trees being cut down etc etc so of course there are plans to go to mars 
because this this planet's been kind of <laughs> demolished in a way, and that'll be interesting to see what what, what happens with with that. That'll be we'll see what happens with that in our lifetime. We shall see how that goes and uh, how. Oh, I mean, on such a, a scale, I was gonna say global scale, and I wasn't thinking like as a as a pun, uh, but it really is. It's uh, humans have been around and just the destruction and it's not just one mistake and we all make mistakes and we're all, you know, accountable. Like it's how does one change when growing up in the system where this is just the kind of ongoing thing, whether it's chopping down forests or hoarding water, poisoning food, privatizing land, uh, dumping nuclear weapons in the Bay or whatever it is, just all the, it's just like this, unchecked damage that's been done to the planet and then people have been born and it's like how do we how do you undo the wrongs of the past and that's just like environmental stuff that's not even dealing with humans treatment of one another which kind of goes hand in hand and it doesn't quite it doesn't really surprise me knowing that if people are going to be that disrespectful of the home of the planet that we live on i guess why wouldn't they hurt each other oh well i'm not quite depressed yet but we'll try to get there. No, we won't. We won't try to get there. I think we will just by happenstance. And I've, I've talked to folks who listen to the show and at, at times people have said it makes them feel uncomfortable, which I think is good because it's, you know, if we don't feel uncomfortable, then there's no, no room to grow, certainly. And the truth is uncomfortable. And that's a way of, of growing, certainly, is to, to kind of question one's behavior and question the world around and to see what can be done to change things and whether that's one's own behavior um, yeah, that's where you can start. All you can do is control your own behavior, certainly. And that might involve having discussions with people who just trying to get the dialogue going, at least, and acting, you know, talking is one thing and then acting is another. And I'm constantly trying to better myself and work on how to be just actively do what I believe in. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult because I feel like in this country and I'm sure in a lot of other places, I'm just speaking from my own experience because I've spent most of my life here in, in the States there's a, an illusion of choice, whether it's going into a grocery store with like the illusion of products to buy or uh, whether it be food or like clothing. Um, there's this, oh, well, you can buy X, Y, or Z. And then, of course, when it comes down to it, though, what choice do we actually have? Because part of it will come down, of course, to capital. How much does one have to spend on an item? And then also, where do those items come from, especially with clothes? Where are they manufactured? Who's making the products? And who's profiting off that? So... One might, you know, okay, I can maybe afford like a shirt. However, if it's made by someone who, you know, through through slave labor, how is that? I mean, that's one doesn't necessarily. <laughs> that's not a good thing to to support. Um, and then on on top of that, just let's see, let's see, it's capital. Uh, oh yeah, who's profiting off it? And that would go more towards like the food and it, it, like this, the companies. Oh yes, this will go into the first story. And I was going to go talk about some transgender stuff as well. And so we'll get into that. But since there's a segue, I'll take it. And so Stephen Colbert, who I'm a huge fan of, huge Strangers with Candy fan, huge Colbert Rapport fan, huge, huge, huge. Love him. Uh, So glad that he's having, uh, glad he's on the, you know, the late show. I'm glad that he's, he's out there doing that. And that's wonderful. And also as a improviser, the cult of improv, certainly to have another representative out there. Uh, That's great. Uh, On the first show, he, I thought it was a good segment. Um, and it was kind of talking about, he was talking about the evil forces and it ended up being a, a product placement, which I thought was a really great way. Cause I, I guess when you get to that level or even not to that level at any kind of level, you, one relies on product placement to support oneself. And that can be kind of tricky. So his product, which is ironic for me, cause I love hummus. 
oh boy, do I love hummus. And the product placement was for Sabro hummus, which is, and I think it's extremely tasty. However, if you look at the ownership of, of uh, Sabra, uh, I don't necessarily agree with their politics in terms of the Middle East, what they're doing there. So uh, when one wants to go buy hummus, you know, it's like, oh, this might taste good. However, if I'm going to give money to a company who has actions that I don't support, that's that's problematic. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, everything's connected though so it's like they also they're providing you know the the money so this show can go on the air although i'm sure a lot of other people are providing money and how does that kind of work out where does where does the money come from and who profits off it and how it's connected and i think it's really tricky and it's really interesting to think about especially uh, in the art world and i guess this is one representation but in terms of the media and even people who want to make their art seen there's a constant having to to ask folks for money just to make art. And imagine if that wasn't the case, if folks didn't have to make compromises with companies. I wonder what that would be like. Hmm, good question. Anyway, so I'm going to go into the uh, the first story, and this is uh, uh, a little get serious, as they always do. And I've got a lot of stories lined up for today, which is great. And they, they go all around the different the spectrums of, of news. And I got some stuff about uh, prisons, got some stuff about Monsanto, uh, got a story about REM telling Donald Trump to fuck off, which is wonderful. And the first one I'm going to go into, though, is is about Stephen Colbert, actually. And uh, a writer uh, wrote a post about the, the writers of Late Show. And I noticed this, too, in the, in the closing credits. The first episode didn't really list the credits of the writers, and the second episode did. And I watched closely, and I was a little bit disappointed that there were only two women on on the writing team out of 19 people so that's two out of 19 which is not very much and i think about even with improv you know the herald team typically eight ish people a little bit more and one would assume all right it'd be great to have at least half (laughs) half representative and if not half you know close to that and two out of 19 certainly not that's not even close to half that's really really low and it's uh so and another another issue is that um, all of the writers are white. So 19 of them, all they're all white. And, uh, you know, Stephen's been very outspoken about really just trying to, you know, lean in and, you know, hire more women and have a diverse staff. And when night, like, that's really ridiculous. And really, I was really disappointed in that. And I understand there's other things that go into play, but that's just making, I think, excuses, to be quite honest, to be at that level and uh, to not really like proactively make that happen i know you can't just like snap your fingers and make it happen but you can certainly work on it and uh the fact that it's 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 i was just really disappointed so um there's a writer who who pointed this out and wrote a little piece about that that i'm gonna read just to give more of an explanation for it and i think it's really important just to talk about it as someone who's in comedy and also as someone who uh really believes us in giving everyone a voice and I feel like it also improves everything. It improves absolutely everything to have as many voices as possible in the conversation. And especially for comedy, uh, just to have a limited view is really, I think it's, it's that kind of hurts everyone and it hurts. Yeah. It just, it hurts everyone. So this is from split cider and this was written by somebody named Meg Wright. And the title is 17 Men, Two Women, Colbert's Writer's Room Shows That Nothing's Changed in Late Night. 
And I will say that one thing I did like about the, because I'm going to be positive, certainly. One thing I did like about the end of the, the first episode was, he, you know, he's friends with, like, Jimmy Fallon, and I, I, could care, I could care less about him. But, however, at least the fact of, like, camaraderie and not that they're, they're not, like, enemies, even though they have the same job, I feel like that's at least a step in the right direction. So, good can come from that. Great. Okay, ahead of his Late Show debut, Stephen Colbert wrote a piece for Glamour last month called Stephen Colbert Shares Why He Thinks Women Should Be in Charge of Everything, and I've been saying that for a long time as well. Uh, it's, it was a funny yet seemingly sincere piece in which Colbert went out of his way to assure fans he would use his major network platform and influence to celebrate women. And this is a quote from the article. Point is, I'm here for you. And that means I'm going to do my best to create a late show that not only appeals to women, but also celebrates their voices. These days, TV would have you believe that being a woman means sensually eating yogurt, looking for ways to feel confident on heavy days, and hunting for houses. But I'm going to make a show that truly respects women, because I know that there's more than one way to be. Maybe you're a woman who likes women. Maybe you're a woman. Maybe you like women and men. Maybe you're a woman who's recently transitioned. Maybe you're a guy who's reading this magazine because your girlfriend bought a copy and it looked interesting. Whoever you are, I promise I'm going to lean in on this. I, it really accentuates my muffin top. Perhaps it was thanks to the Glamour article that CBS didn't announce the full writing staff prior to the late show premiere because, as last night's credits showed, Colbert and crew aren't exactly leaning in. Just two out of the 19 staff writers are women, and 19 out of the 19 staff writers are white. Just a few days before the Glamour article went online, Colbert responded to a question at TCA about the diversity of his late show writing staff with this. Speaking of his writing staff, one reporter in the room asked him to detail the staff's diversity. Lots of Leos, a couple Tauruses, but we, but we make it work, Colbert said. Obviously, those people shouldn't be left alone. This sort of silly deflection is a technique Colbert, Colbert had used before when he accepted his Emmy for the Colbert Report last year. He cracked a joke about his lone female Colbert Report staff writer. I'm so proud of those guys and one woman. Sorry for, sorry for that, for some reason. It's a joke, sure, but the way Colbert says sorry for that, for some reason, is at least an acknowledgement, however snarky or dismissive, that a lot of people are sick and tired of writing staffs with little to no female or minority voices. This issue feels like a broken record by now, but while the Late Show writing staff is more or less the same as the Colbert Report, Stephen and crew not only missed an opportunity to add more variety and perspective to their staff, but they also proved that Glamour article to be sadly an empty promise. It pains me to put the Late Show in a negative light the same week of it as its debut. I'm a huge fan of the Colbert Report, Strangers with Candy, and everything else Stephen has done, but I'd really love to see him follow through with on his promise through his actions, and by actions, I mean actively hiring women. When I watched the credits roll last night, I couldn't help but think back to the time when I met him at a 2009 book signing for I Am America, and So Can You, in New York. I was in my last year of college, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But I was a huge Colbert Report fan, so as he signed my copy, I nervously told him, I want to work for you one day. I don't remember the polite, totally not discouraging answer he gave me, probably something like, oh, do you now? But six years later, it's still difficult for women to break through in late night, or as Colbert called it in Glamour, a bit of a sausage fest. I can only hope that six years from now, the odds that today's female college seniors, aspiring late night writers, will enjoy a much more favorable climate, uh, will enjoy a much more favorable climate, are a little better. So yeah, I really agree with that, and I'm glad it was written, certainly, and 
the idea is of course to to push people forward to include include more voices and that's um all around and when you think about how many people uh tv shows reach and to, to have that base uh of people putting in input you know it's how important it is to have as many voices as possible so I have a lot of I have a lot of good music going in, and I could go into the next story, but I'm gonna play some music instead, and mm, I'll do another song from Monica McIntyre, and this is great. It's called uh, "I'll Fly Away," and then I'll be back with some more news. So uh, yeah, stay tuned, of course, and we'll be back within a little bit. If we don't heal ourselves how can we make it i know we understand how to fake it and that's nothing but heartaches and heartbreaks and broken bodies riddled with disease and that is not divinity Again, that was Monica McIntyre, and this is off her new album called Morning to the Moonlight, and it's a great album. Highly recommend it. Um, so going into some more news, this will be the food section. Every day I introduce, every day, every episode I introduce a new section, a new type of section on the show, and food's important, certainly, and it's being poisoned, so what are we going to do about it? Here's some good news. There is some good news on this show. Uh, I definitely try to look for the, the good news, and there is good news happening. And this comes from Reuters. It's a really brief little thing, article. Uh, French court confirms Monsanto guilty of chemical poisoning. Now, ideally, we shouldn't have to <laughs> live in a world where our food is poisoned by a company. Um, however, glad that we can take legal action to at least hold them accountable. It's a start, right? 
Okay, so a French court upheld on Thursday a 2012 ruling in which Monsanto was found guilty of chemical poisoning of a French farmer who says he suffered neurological problems after inhaling the U.S. biotech company's Lasso weed killer. The decision by an appeal court in Lyon, southeast France, confirmed the initial judgment, the first such case heard in the court in court in France that ruled Monsanto was responsible for the intoxication and ordered the company to fully compensate grain grower Paul Francois. Monsanto's lawyer, who, why would you be a lawyer for Monsanto? Anyway, Monsanto's lawyer said the company would now bring the decision before France's highest appeal court. So, again, at least, I mean, oh. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a, on a problem or trying to undo some real terrible shit that's happened. However, it's still better than them not being found guilty, right? Uh, I feel like it's good to celebrate victories of any size. Very important. So the next, the next uh, article in uh, the food section here on the Weekly Review is also a positive story, which is great. And this comes from Inhabitat. And this is written by Mark Boyer. Gorilla grafters secretly graft fruit-bearing branches onto San Francisco trees. Some good happening in the city. Quite often, I'll read an article uh, about something going on in the world, and San Francisco will, will be mentioned, and uh, it won't be for a good thing. It'll be like Uber, you know, there's the riots in France, and they mention San Francisco-based company Uber, and it's like, oh, San Francisco, come on, guys. Let's do something good. So this is pretty neat. Uh, we've heard of guerrilla gardening, and we've heard of grafting plants. But guerrilla grafting? That's new to us. For the past two years, a group that calls themselves guerrilla grafters have been secretly grafting fruit-bearing uh, scions onto ornamental, non-fruiting trees in San Francisco. City officials contend that guerrilla grafters are breaking the law. Oh. But their actions have been celebrated by proponents of urban agriculture, and they have been included in the U.S. Pavilion's Spontaneous Interventions exhibit at the Venice um, Biennial. So that's pretty awesome. And I, that's the thing with laws, and it's like to be so upset about people providing food for people, why, why, do, why would you be opposed to that? All right. The streets of San Francisco are lined with pear, plum, and apple trees, but out of fear that the fruit would make a mess and attract rodents, the city intentionally planted sterile trees that don't bear fruit. By grafting fruit-bearing branches on those trees, guerrilla grafters make fruit free and accessible to anyone who picks it. The group was started by Tara Hui, who started grafting fruit-bearing branches onto city trees a few years ago. Uh, to graft a branch onto a fruit tree, all you have to do is make a slit with a knife in a branch on the host tree, insert a branch from a fruit-bearing tree, and secure it with tape. Once it heals, it connects. That's so rad. Ah, we said that, we told the LA Times, um, basically the branch becomes part of the tree. Gorilla grafters use color-coded electrical tape to mark their handiwork but they won't disclose the location of their interventions to the press out of fear that the city will remove them. With undoing civilization one branch at a time as their motto, guerrilla grafters consider what they do to be a radical act, and it is. Although it doesn't solve problems of food scarcity, it's a symbolic move towards making fresh food free and accessible to all. 
as the group explains, it's one step closer to creating a habitat that sustains us. Ah, oh, what a happy story. That's great. Uh, hopefully that's inspiring and also just um, how easy it sounds too. It sounds like uh, it's uh, fairly easy for folks to do. So hopefully that will inspire other folks to do the same. And we've that's a theme that's been on the show for a long time, just making sure food is accessible, especially like fruit is accessible for people, and especially in the city. So I think that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. So hmm, the next story I have, uh, I don't think I have a good segue for this, but let's keep the upbeat going and this will, again, oh, I'm just going to read it. So this is from the San Jose Mercury News in the opinion section. Uh, Latif Asad Abdullah, prisoners led the successful fight against solitary confinement. And this is, again, people doing good to undo the bad that's we've kind of grown up with and just lived through. Okay, so this is an op-ed again. Uh, his name is Latif Asad Abdullah. And Latif writes, I have been out of prison for 10 years, but my eight years in solitary confinement in the Pelican Bay Special Housing Unit still haunts me. It affected the very core of my being. The sensory deprivation was extreme, and there is no stimulation for my senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Mankind is stimulated by nature, the flight of a bird, the smell of a rose, but Pelican Bay SHU is nothing but concrete. There is nothing to motivate my creativity. Instead, I had a redundant daily existence. No grass, birds, barking of dogs, soothing sounds of the ocean. It was the opposite. When I got out, I had nothing. I didn't know what to do to grow, to be active, to be creative, to aspire to be something. What is so disturbing to me is that the environment, which deprives human beings of all sensory input, is created by design. I used study to overcome it, turning my cell into a classroom and sticking to an hourly study schedule. I read books and magazines purchased for me and had occasional visits from human rights groups. My mother would visit me, but we weren't allowed to touch or hug. She knew we were in the grips of an unfair system. To survive, I had to see myself as a combatant in a war that was attempting to destroy me. My techniques were exercise, study, and talking to myself. People who did not take this approach would scream, shout, and have mental breakdowns. I had to fight every day not to succumb to this fate. At the very inception of the Pelican Bay SHU, prisoners challenged the inhumane as prisoners <coughs> prisoners challenged as inhumane the process used to house us in sensory deprivation units. I was put in the SHU when the prison decided I was associated with a prison gang, not for any behavior on my part. I tried to challenge this as a violation of due process, but like many others, with no legal team or movement behind me, I faced a process that seemed to be set in stone. Even so, prisoners continued to believe we could prevail. We saw marginal gains with the Castillo case, which led to my release from SHU to general population in 2000. The wider-ranging gains made by the latest victorious settlement in Asker v. Brown, the class action lawsuit against solitary confinement in California, are a direct result of the ongoing effort of prisoners to bring about real change. Those efforts inspired a human rights movement to say that these conditions are cruel and unusual, and a legal team led by the Center for Constitutional Rights, together with legal services for prisoners with children and others, to get on board. While some might play down the settlement in Ashker is not enough, I believe that it is enough for today. Not sending someone to SHU because of alleged gang membership is huge. Creating a new alternative housing unit for some prisoners is also important. 
the changes are a step towards a bigger objective, ending solitary confinement entirely. Challenges to cruel and unusual punishment will continue, and Pelican Bay SHU will continue to be a focal point. I hope that more people will get involved. We need to apply more pressure on the prison system until it surrenders the arrogant disposition that allows it to maintain these inhumane conditions. And about the author, uh, Latif Asad Abdullah of Oakland is a 58-year-old drug and alcohol rehab counselor and a college student. He was released from prison 10 years ago and has had a clean record ever since he wrote this for this newspaper. And again, if you want to uh, read that, this comes from the San Jose Mercury News in the opinion section. So yeah, I found this article through the organization that was mentioned here in the article, and that was uh, the Prisoners with Children, uh, Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. And there's a lot of different organizations, and that's one uh, great thing about just kind of sticking your head out and seeing what's out there and knowing there's so many people doing the, this really great and important work and step-by-step, step, uh, hopefully undoing this these evil processes that have been in place for a while. So with that, let's get into some more music, shall we? Now, it was Labor Day on Monday, and uh, I didn't play any Labor Day songs this past Friday, so I'm going to play a couple right now. And there's a list that was compiled that I'm going to kind of go on off of. And the first one is from Gil Scott Heron, uh, Three Miles Down. And then we'll do a Clash song, I think most folks. Not most folks, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I'm a big Clash fan, so career opportunities following that. So stay tuned, and then we'll be back with some more uh, more good times. Uh, uh, more good times with the news articles that uh, bring us all together and inspire us. Yeah, that's the best thing I did all day. You know, I had given up playing this song for a while. Till I got back over here. The first headline I noticed had to do with the coal miners union again. I said, wait. So I started to put this back in my repertoire since it's still in the news. And this is a song that we like to start off with because we like to all start off together figuring there's a better chance of us ending up that way. So I'd like to have y'all sing with us if you could. This is going to be the part. This is the coal miners sing on their way to work. Now, I know there are a lot of you who don't do songs about coal miners, but this may soon change if you have to go get your own coal. <laughs> you wake up in the morning a little lamp on your hat. <laughs> You'll be glad you know this song. That's damn good, matter of fact. Some of y'all in the back got to sing louder. Come on, one, two, say, hey. Some right. Say, Another shift of men, some of my friends coming over. Hard to imagine I'm working in the mines. Got coal dust in your lungs, on your skin, and on your mind. Yeah, when well, I've listened to the speeches, and it occurred to me, politicians. 
with career opportunities and before that uh we heard from gil scott heron with three miles down okay 
so getting into some more news. First of all, I'm going to do a brief plug for a website I found about about recently that might be helpful to some folks out there and or people you know, and that is informingconsent.org. And Informing Consent um, provides accurate current info for the trans community, and a lot of this is medical. And so I thought I would just give that a brief shout out. Uh, it's great when there's more information and knowledge out there that can be shared. So again, that is informant, informing, informingconsent.org. So check that out. They have updated information on surgeries, document change, uh, a lot of different things that help the trans community. So that's great that that's a resource that is out there. So going into the next story, uh, stories plural, and they do tie together. The first one is, ugh. Second one's a little bit better. So I try to avoid talking about people in positions of power who are assholes. Well, actually, no, it's a lie. I do talk about them, and I talk shit about them because they're assholes who need to be taken down. Uh, I do feel it's a shame that people get propped up, and part of the reason they're propped up is because we give them attention. However, by acknowledging that they are thinking of uh, words to use to describe them accurately, but people who are destructive... Uh, giving them even more attention is 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 pro- is a problem. However, uh, we need to acknowledge that they what they do causes harm. So this comes from uh, the Latin Times and immigration activist assaulted at rally by Donald Trump supporter. So I'm gonna ugh, read this story. And again, when you put people in positions of power, people take positions of power, and then they end up saying things that are really hurtful. They have repercussions and violent repercussions, and that does not that should not be tolerated at all. So this is written by uh, Sedar uh, Atanasio. And again, this is from Latin Times, uh, immigration activist assaulted at rally by Donald Trump supporter. Immigration activist uh, Erica Fuentes cries after an alleged assault. And this is a picture, I'm just reading what the picture caption says, by another attendant at the Hashtag Stop Iran Now event in D.C. Immigration activists affiliated with the United We Dream targeted the event's headliner Donald Trump, who has introduced radical immigration enforcement policies as a part of his presidential campaign. Immigrant activists who crashed Donald Trump and Ted Cruz's Hashtag Stop Iran deal rally on Wednesday in D.C. so that they were spit on and otherwise assaulted by crowd members before being forcibly removed by police. Video of the event shared by immigration advocates show protesters yelling, hey, hey, ho, ho, Donald Trump has got to go, and opposing rally attendees yell, go home. One immigration activist was apparently violently yanked by her ponytail, reducing the woman to tears. A series of photos by a fellow activist, uh, Haziel uh, Perez of United We Dream, uh, seemed to show an identified man going up behind Erica Fuentes, grabbing her by the hair and yanking it violently. The man wears a t-shirt that says, Stop Iran Now. Latin Times was not able to verify the sequence of events leading up to the incident. United We Dream and other dreamer groups have been known to carry out aggressive and disruptive but nonviolent protests. Uh, the man in the Stop Iran Now t-shirt, and they, this is, they post some photos of what happened. And uh, the Stop stop. The man in the Stop Iran Now t-shirt holds a sign whose message appears to be obscured by pictures of military decorations that were added later. The violent act is the latest uncouth outburst by attendants of Trump's events to be caught on camera. This is not about you. Get out of my country. An unidentified Trump supporter yelled at Mexican-American journalist Jorge uh, Ramos in Iowa in August. Ramos is a U.S. citizen. Fuentes told the Latin Times that she is a U.S.-born citizen with Salvadorian heritage and that she attended the protest to stand in solidarity with the immigrant community. 
Like other members of the protest group, she wore a shirt with the names of immigrants. Video of the hashtag StopIranNow event shared by Mario Carrillo, also of United We Dream, shows another one of the, of the tense interactions between StopIranNow supporters and immigration activists. The Iran deal itself is likely to go through, after opposition lawmakers reportedly engineered a deal that would allow it to pass Congress without requiring them to vote yes. Ted Cruz, who spoke at Wednesday's rally, voted for the deal in May, saying that while it was bad, it would allow for debate. Critics say the deal, which includes the lifting of U.S. sanctions on Iran, will allow the country to obtain a nuclear weapon. So, again... I don't have anything to add to that. Just it's just shitty that it, that's happened, and also just the. It, I mean, I I don't know. I feel like most folks listening to this, it's the the fact that we even have to deal with this is just disgusting. And the idea of telling folks to go home when, of course, this country was uh, the folks kind of came here from elsewhere and murdered the folks who are already living here, and then to have the the idea that you can tell other folks to, to go home is just ludicrous and really, I, I don't have anything really constructive to say about that other than just what's already been pretty much been said, which is just ridiculous and how, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't, I don't have words for it. Uh, it's gross behavior. It's really gross behavior. And uh, it's really important that we have people in positions of power who don't encourage this line of thinking, this ignorant thinking. So on the plus side, um, some folks are standing up to Donald Trump. A lot of folks are. I was walking down Mission Street the other day, and there was a lot of Donald Trump pinatas, so that's great. And also, uh, here's a story from one of my favorite bands, R.E.M., and this is from Salon, uh, Wednesday, September 9th, uh, written by Aaron Keane. R.E.M. slams Donald Trump. We do not authorize or condone the use of our music at this event. Uh, the candidate came out to It's the End of the World as We Know It at a Tea Party rally today, and that was, of course, it's, uh, Wednesday, a couple days ago. All right. Uh, at a Tea Party rally on the West Lawn of the U.S. Capitol today, where anger spilled out over the Iran deal, Donald Trump greeted the crowd with the, stra- with the strains of R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine, which, needless to say, puzzled music fans. Um, they share a few tweets. One person wrote, oh my God, they did not just play R.E.M.'s End of the World as We Know It as intro music for Trump. They did. And riled up members of the group themselves, like bassist Mike Mills. And, uh, uh, yeah, so when Donald Trump came to stage at anti-Iran deal, they played End of the World as We Know It. What say you? Someone tweeted to him. And Mike Mills said, cease and desist. Trump spoke after Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who invited him to the event. This evening, the band responded to the use of their song, posting the following statement to their Facebook page. While we, we do, while we do not authorize or condone the use of our music at this political event, we do ask that these candidates cease and desist from doing so. Let us remember that there are things of greater importance at stake here. The media and the American voter should focus on the bigger picture and not allowing grandstanding politicians to distract us from the, pa- from the pressing issues of the day and of the current presidential campaign. So, the, yeah, there's that. And I had read something. Okay, here's an update. That's what I was going for. Update. After the official statement was released, Mills published a statement in a series of tweets on behalf of frontman Michael Stipe, who presumably does not tweet, uh, who presumably does not tweet. And Michael Stipe says, 
Go fuck yourselves, the lot of you. You sad, attention-grabbing, power-hungry little men. Do not use our music or my voice for your moronic charade of a campaign. Michael's type. Next time, maybe Trump's campaign can consult this handy list of artists who won't recoil from being associated with right-wing candidates. You're welcome. So that was uplifting to read. Uh, there's also uh, Survivor, the who the band, the lead singer of the band Survivor, was upset that Kim Davis was using uh, Eye of the Tiger, and they were upset about that. And that kind of reminds me of in the 80s when Reagan used Born in the USA, and Springsteen was like, "Do you are you not listening to the lyrics of the song? This is not. Uh, this is. I don't support you, and also you to- do not get it." So I'm all for artists who uh, speak up about having their work used for for evil. I think that's really a good thing. So uh, uh, that kind of makes me feel like I should play some R.E.M. in in celebration. And I'll, I'll get to them in a little bit. And first of all, we're going to hear another song, though. And this is, yeah, this is going to be, uh, this is actually a Peter Gabriel song. And this is a live version of Mother of Violence. And it's uh, sung by his daughter from the concert album uh, Encore Tour 2009. And the theme, I guess, is connected to a lot of the stories that we talk about here where just people committing acts of violence, and it's really fear-based. So we'll hear that, and then we will get back into some more news for everybody.
Welcome back. And that was Peter Gabriel, technically his Melody. daughter Melanie Gabriel, with Mother of Violence. And yeah, that song says it all. So, coming up next on this lovely show today, at an Oakland Pride event, I went to a couple this past week and met someone named Cozy who works at an organization. And the way you can access it online is peersnet.org, and that's P E E R S N E T dot O R G. And it's uh, about mental health awareness. And there seems to be a dearth of that here in in the country. Uh, probably in a lot of places, I'm imagining. Uh, yeah, definitely in a lot of places. It's not just based here in this country, but there seems to be uh, not a lot of resources and not a lot of acknowledgement about uh, what's what everyone kind of goes through. And people are kind of forced to find means to deal or not deal with what they're going through. So I'm going to read a little uh, piece that they wrote about World Suicide Prevention Day uh, 2015, which is uh, was September 10th, and uh, that was yesterday. Uh, as you may or may not know, this week until September 13th is Suicide Prevention Week. Today, September 10th, 2015, is World Suicide Prevention Day. On this day, people everywhere are standing together to spread knowledge, resources, support, and comfort to remove the devastation of suicide from lives across the globe. Light a candle near a window at 8 o'clock p.m. on September 10th to show your support for suicide prevention, uh, to remember a lost loved one, and for the survivors of suicide. Visit the Peers Facebook page to join us in posting candles on our timeline starting at 8 p.m. To show our support and contribute to the sharing of resources, Peers has gathered resources related to suicide prevention, and we are sharing them with you here. One, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides skilled, trained counselors 24-7 to talk through any problems that you are having. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is also an online resource to find help, crisis centers near you, and information to get involved. To reach the Lifeline, call 1-800-273-TALK, and that's 1-800-273-8255. Number two, know the warning signs of suicide. Visit the American Association of Suicidology to learn the warning signs of someone at risk of harming him or herself and how the mnemonic um, IS path warm is path warm will help you remember the signs. Ooh, what's that? Let's click on it now. Is path warm. 
Is path warm? Uh, is path warm stands for one I <laughs> one I uh, I isolation S substance abuse P purposelessness A anxiety T trapped H hopelessness W withdrawal A anger R recklessness M mood changes. And that makes me think about the the person in the car who <laughs> was driving recklessly, and uh, everyone's going through it. A person in acute risk for suicidal behavior most often will show warning signs of acute risk, threatening to hurt or kill him or herself, or taking, or talking of wanting to hurt or kill him or herself, and or looking for ways to ki to kill him. I'm gonna say themselves so we can get the gender out of this. Uh, looking for ways to kill themselves by seeking access to firearms, available pills, or other means, and or talking or writing about death, dying, or suicide, when these actions are out of the ordinary. Uh, these might be remembered uh, as expressed or communicated ideation. If observed, seek help as soon as possible by contacting a mental health professional or calling 1-800-273-TALK. Uh, expended warning signs, increased substance abuse, no reason for living, no sense of purpose in life, anxiety, agitation, unable to sleep or sleeping all the time, feeling trapped like there's no way out, hopelessness, withdrawal from friends, family, and society, rage, uncontrolled anger, seeking revenge, acting reckless, or engaging in risky activities, seemingly without thinking, uh, dramatic mood changes. If observed, seek help as soon as possible by contacting a mental health professional or calling 1-800-273-TALK for a referral. These warning signs were compiled by a task force of expert clinical researchers and translated for the general public. The origin of Is Path Warm? Okay, so learn something new every day. That's what Is Path warm stands for next suicide prevention lifeline toolkit uses toolkit to create a crisis prevention plan for you your family and friends the kit includes a the my3 app an app that helps you define your network and your plan to stay safe by contacting your three your three could be a friend neighbor therapist or anyone else that you trust to be there when you need them most be sure to share these resources with your families, friends, communities, and networks. Suicide is preventable, and they say every life matters. Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, not much more I can uh, add to that, but wanted to put that out there that, yeah, it's Suicide Prevention Week. Okay, and I'm going to get into another story, and I think a lot of it, it's, uh, it, this is like a worldwide epidemic, and a lot of it, it's not necessarily talked about like the the kind of the, the pressures that folks are under and that's what the next couple stories there's a segue uh <laughs> one day someone's gonna actually ride by the station uh on a segue and then that'll just be wonderful uh so this goes into i guess work and how folks are forced <laughs> to work uh uncontrollably and just way too much and it results in exhaustion and which leads to a lot of discomfort putting it mildly and that would add to i'm sure rage and uh anger and of course there's like a, also i wanted to comment on the on that article with rage and there's a lot of rage and that the looking at the roots of rage and living in an unjust society where humans are are terrible to each other based on people's bodies uh, at the end of the day part of it goes into the work uh atmosphere where folks need to work uh way too much and then also just how humans treat one another based on their bodies. And that goes to the very first story with the, the writers of the, the show being 
two of two of the 19 were women and 19 of the 19 were all white and what does that say in terms of with with power and privilege and folks's voices being heard and amplified and to not feel one's voice recognized at the end of the day uh of course that's going to lead to rage so i think it's really important also just to look at the the causes of this it's not just uh, we don't live in a vacuum everything is connected and everything impacts everybody else so here it comes news from europe sometimes they 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 know what's up uh time taken to travel to work should count as work according to european court now i wonder what would happen here as a lot of folks uh commute to work on buses they don't work in the city they live in the city but they travel out of the city to work and uh, if if companies uh, had to pay the workers for their time traveling i wonder if they might move out of the city i wonder if that would happen and i totally agree with this where i've known quite a few folks whose commutes are just ridiculous like hours and hours sometimes uh, i had a i had a boss in new york who lived up in i think it was rockland county no is that the right county i don't know but it was up in newburgh which was it's pretty far up there it's close to poughkeepsie which is where vassar is like it was and he lived he worked in new york city and it was like every day it was like maybe a two two and a half hour commute that's a lot that's a lot granted he was in the i think he was in a privileged position where uh not everyone's ever in that position and he you know chose to live up there certainly but that's the amount of time folks spend getting to work. Oof. That's, that's my comment on it is oof. All right. Again, this story comes from independent.co.uk. Time taken to travel to work should count as work, according to European court. And hopefully this will, you know, expand uh, elsewhere. This was written by Tom Brooks Pollock. Time taken to travel to and from work at the beginning and end of each day should count as working time under the law, according to Europe's highest court. The European Court of Justice, ECJ, has ruled that workers without a fixed office should be able to charge for the time such journeys last, whereas at present they are not allowed to do so. It could mean that companies employing such workers as electricians, gas fitters, care workers, and sales reps could be in breach of EU working time regulations if they choose to abandon uh, a regional office, for example. The ECJ said it was protecting the health and safety of workers according to the European Union's working time directive. The ruling revolves around a legal case in Spain involving Tyco, the security systems company. The ruling said, the fact that the workers begin and finish the journeys at their homes stems directly from the decision of their employer to abolish the regional offices and not from the desire of the workers themselves. Requiring them to bear the burden of their employer's choice would be contrary to the objective of protecting the safety and health of workers pursued by the directive, which includes the necessity of guaranteeing workers a minimum rest period. So, and then the articles followed with a lot of, a lot of comments. So yeah, I think that's definitely a, uh, a step in the in the right direction. And I think about that quite a bit, as I mentioned. So going into the next um, article, and this is a uh, friend Fury who was on the the show recently posted this, and I think this was great. And there's a lot of anger about tech. And uh, this article kind of moves into that where there's a lot of anger and where should we place our anger? And this is from The Guardian, and this is written by S.E. Smith. When we blame tech for everything, capitalism gets off the hook. I pretty much, I don't say blame capitalism for everything, just most things. Uh, I blame the state for some things as well. Uh, (laughs) 
and it's it's really important to look at the the, the causality of why we we live the way we live because as humans i was just thinking about in the in the park yesterday uh, we really don't need much to survive. However, the, the pressures put on us to secure housing and food and health uh, makes it so that even working sometimes multiple jobs, it's people are barely making ends meet and many folks are in debt and that's no way to live and we weren't meant to, to live like this at all. So, you know, who do we blame for this? And of course with, you know, blame uh, then goes on to action. So who do we who and what do we hold accountable and how do we go about changing that so the next generations don't have to go through what previous generations have. So here we go. Our smartphones and computers make us permanently contact contactable and on call, but should we be angry at capitalist structures? But we should be angry. Yeah, there we go. But we should be angry at capitalist structures, not app developers. And I have a friend who said, I can be angry at both. And I was like, okay. You're here. Uh, uh, every other day, I am reading the co a column blaming technology for something. People are too busy and don't take time to appreciate life. People are on their phones all day. People sit at home watching House of Cards instead of going out for a walk or doing something nice. Literacy and the written word are coming to an end because of the pernicious influence of computers. I agree. Uh, even stayed politic uh, publications such as the New York Times have, go have got in on it, and people who are otherwise entirely reasonable with excellent critical thinking skills and the ability to articulate arguments, well, fall into the blaming, fall into the blaming tech trap. It's an easy one, worth at least a few column inches. It can be used to quickly whip up some outraged commentary, backed perhaps by some cherry-picked statistics. 86% of young people report using emoji. 75% of the 18 to 24 age group prefers BuzzFeed over the LA Times, whatever. Especially at more conventional publications, these sorts of comment commentaries are extremely common. But even tech, online-based media publications indulge in the periodic column bemoaning the state of society and tech's role in it. The logic of such commentaries usually starts with an assertion that tech has infiltrated every aspect of our lives. There really is an app for that. Then comes the attitude that this is negative, that access to applications and tools to track our lives sets a dangerous precedent. Tech, we're told, is bad because it's distancing, because it's a distancing tool that's creating a fractured and fragmented society filled with people drifting in their own planetary orbits. When it comes to looking for things to blame as we evaluate the current state of society, though, we're missing something critical. The problem is not tech, it's capitalism. Admitting the real source of the problem creates an opportunity to address it. Capitalism has adroitly managed to evade responsibility and neatly slip its leash, but we should be able to exercise greater critical thinking than that and bring it to heel. Capitalism and tech are deeply intertwined, of course, but let's not confuse the two. We're constantly en enmeshed in our devices because we have to be. Most of us work in professions with an unreasonable expectations of employees, believing that we should be available at all times to perform all labor. That's been facilitated by tech, which makes it easier to contact people. But tech shouldn't shoulder the blame, all the blame. It's capitalism that took advantage of this opportunity to work it, turning it into something that could be used to control employees and keep them constantly within arm's reach. 
the person who refuses to be constantly available or who exercises discretion in terms of the kind of work performed after hours won't last long at a company and certainly won't advance in terms of salary and rank. Tech feeds into capitalism, and capitalism feeds into tech. With the advent of mobile phones, it's got much easier to contact people. Better yet, a job could supply and pay for a phone, creating a sense of obligation for employees provided with the technology. The need for availability means that people keep their phones on, check their email repeatedly, pay attention to texts, answer calls from work-associated numbers, are always on edge, imagining when they might be contacted, and there's no way to know if a contact is frivolous or not. Before, a constant on-call state was only an issue for physicians. Medical providers were, and are, expected to work on-call shifts in case they were needed, and many ask for calls about patients in critical condition even when they aren't on call. Thus, an obstetrician might be called at any point during her shift to deliver a baby. A pediatrician with nanotechnology training might turn, might in turn get a call asking for assistance with a premature baby in distress. That same obstetrician might request that if her patient arrives in, at a hospital in distress, she be contacted, whether or not she's on call. There was a cultural understanding and expectation here. Of course, people who are saving lives need to be able to use technologies to do so. That same expectation created a precedent, though. Suddenly, meeting capitalist needs has become as important as saving lives. People in a variety of industries, including those that might not spring to mind as those that might develop emergencies, find themselves needing to be accessible at all times. Upper management needs to be around in case something crops up, whether it's a walk-in freezer gone belly up or a server gone down or a PR crisis. Meanwhile, lower level employees have to be ready to fill in shifts, to swarm in to fix problems that managers only hear about and then delegate to address issues that arise on the, gr on the ground level. Suddenly, an entire company is on the phone list and the ability to contact people instantly feeds to an, <coughs> an increasing level of contact, even if it's not particularly necessary. We're living in a culture of instant expectation. That's in part due to tech, which has facilitated the ability to theoretically respond immediately to a query, need, or concern. But it's also driven by capitalism, which swooped in to take advantage of this as soon as it became evident. Capitalism drives the tech to make it even easier to keep people busy, to extend their working hours, to put them at the mercy of their employers. Should we be mad at phone manufacturers and app builders and the like, or should we be angry at capitalist structures that bring us here? And I feel like I would drop the microphone if I didn't want to damage the microphone, but uh, I feel like that's... That's awesome. I'm so glad that was said. And yes, lots to think about because I do feel, uh, I myself am guilty of it where I'm in public sometimes and I'm looking at my phone instead of looking at people. And I feel even more so when I'm with friends sometimes and people start taking out their phones and it's like, we're all here together in the same time. You know, we don't know the next time this is going to happen. And instead of connecting with one another, we're, we're looking at our phones. And I myself am guilty of that sometimes. And I think about being on public transportation and how often... Uh, folks look at their phones instead of, you know, you might 
meet your new best friend or a lover or someone, you know, who might save your life or offer you a job or um, take down capitalism with you. I don't know. You can meet all sorts of superheroes. And if everyone's kind of engaged in their, in their phones, then there's like less chance of connection among people. And also in terms of information. And I, I totally am calling myself out on this. Like I do rely on my phone and oftentimes one of the great things I feel is, is a GPS and having maps on phones, especially if I'm in a place I've never been, which was happening a lot for a while, for a while. And then I think about how I could also ask someone else on the street, you know, Hey, excuse me, where is, where am I? <laughs> where am I? How do I, do you know where this is? And folks are usually happy to help. And even if folks don't know the answer, um, it's, there's, there's something that it's like what we're all here for. We're here to help each other. And I feel in terms of checking out technology, instead of talking to other people, we end up isolating ourselves more and feeling more distanced. And then something else I'm also wary of is the information that's available online, certainly. And don't have to talk about that too much to know all the shit that gets posted that's not fact-checked or that's factual, factually inaccurate or wrong or misleading. And that might not go into maps necessarily, but what happens when everyone starts relying so much on what's online for information and for knowledge, whether that's incorrect, uh, where, what, what happens to our critical thinking and what happens to our ways to actually speak to one another and, and find, and we rely not so much on our own intelligences or on each other or on learning, but something else that's handheld. And that won't even get into the folks who don't have access to, to quote unquote smartphones. I really hate that they're called smartphones because they're not, I mean, a phone needs to be able to make a call. And I feel like I've had more trouble making calls on smartphones than I have on any other phone I've had. Uh, flip phones were easier to make calls on. Uh, phones that were plugged into the wall, landlines, those have been easier. Uh, smartphones are not that smart necessarily. They add a lot of extra things, and I'm grateful to have a lot of these things. The other day, I was, uh, oh yeah, I was at the, one of the Oakland Pride events at Humanist Hall, and a song came on, and a friend said, oh, what's the song? And I said, I don't know, and I use the Shazam app, which is one of the apps I'm always first to, to download. I like that app where it identifies a song, and that's great. That's something where technology really, I feel like, helps folks. Then again, I could have asked around, like, hey, who's playing this song? So there we go. I guess that's not always an option, but... Uh, I feel in a lot of ways it does end up separating people from one another, which is what capitalism does too. It, it makes people either compete or separate from one another. And if we actually were to trust each other and work together, uh, there would be no need for folks in power to uh, tell us what to do. So that's just a thought. Anyway, we're going to go on to some more music. Here's another song that was from like the, the Labor Day songs. This is uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock with uh, More Than a Paycheck. Paycheck to our loved ones and families. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. More than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. More than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. I wanted more 
welcome back. That was Chitty Collins with Bread and Roses. I had not heard that song before. Thought I'd give that a whirl. Again, that came from Top 10 Labor Day songs. I never saw that Top 10 list on Letterman. Uh, but we do the Top 10 list here. Not really. I'll play most of them, er, as many as I can. And before that, uh, More Than a Paycheck by Sweet Honey in the Rock. Really liked that one a lot. So getting into some more stories. Oh, so many stories. So many good things. Uh, here's something that's okay. You know, something ugh, happens and then... Uh, people step down, and sometimes it's really great when people... That's my theme. That's one of the themes. Uh, great when folks in positions of power who don't know what they're doing step down. Good thing happens. All right, so this comes from LGBTQ Nation. Three school board members resign after transgender student debate. And this is written by Jim Soar. Uh, in St. Louis, uh, three of the seven members of a suburban St. Louis school board have resigned amid a debate over a transgender high school student's request to be allowed to use the girls' bathrooms. The fact that anyone would stand in the way of anyone wanting to use the bathroom is that says more about them than anybody else. Okay, during a special meeting of the Hillsborough uh, R3 school board on Thursday, the four remaining members accepted the resignations of the board's president, John Stewart, not the John Stewart. This is John Stewart with a J O H N. John Stewart, its vice president Dan McCarthy, and its director Charles Bo Harrison. Superintendent Aaron Common said. None of the letters, most of them only a sentence or two, stated specific reasons for the departure, Komen uh, later told the Associated Press. Komen refused to link the resignations to recent unrest over transgender Hillsborough High School senior Lila Perry, saying that doing so would be hearsay and gossip, and I'm not going to enter into that. What they wrote in the resignation letters is what they wrote, he said. Neither Stewart nor McCarthy immediately responded to messages left Thursday at their home phone numbers, and Harrison doesn't have a listed number. Board members have not spoken publicly about the issue involving Perry. Perry 17, uh, I'm going to, I disagree with some of the, the language here, uh, signed male uh, at birth, uh, identifies as female, and wears a long wig and skirt to school. It shouldn't even matter what she's wearing, but okay. Uh, she was said that she wants to be treated like other female students and told school administrators she wasn't content continuing to use a gender-neutral faculty bathroom instead of being allowed to use the girls' bathrooms. Perry, the school began okay the school be Barry this school year began using the girls locker room for gym class though it was not immediately clear Thursday whether that was the administrators blessings during a board meeting last month present uh, parents expressed concern that Perry was getting special rights at the expense of other students I hate this shit I hate that arguments of people getting special rights uh, when they just want equal rights I, I hate that argument uh, and on August 31st, the dispute produced dual walkouts, one by the school's Gay-Straight Alliance and other Perry supporters, and the other by students opposing special accommodations for her. How I don't understand how letting someone be able to use the bathroom they want to use is considered a special accommodation. Please, I just don't, I don't understand that line of thinking at all. At that time, Common said in a statement that, sh that the district respects the rights of all students and appreciates the fact that the students we are educating are willing to stand on their belief system and to support their cause beliefs through their expression of free speech. Common added that the district accepts all students no matter their race, gender, or sexual orientation. We will promote tolerance and acceptance of all students that attend our district while not tolerating bullying, harassing behaviors of any type in any form, Common's statement said. And I wonder if that includes the, uh, the board members. Uh, Perry has said that the school administration has been supportive and made her feel welcome, though she insisted she didn't want to be relegated to using a unisex bathroom. 
I am a girl, and I'm not going to be pushed away to another bathroom, she, t- she has told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Coleman again said Thursday the board would work with Missouri School Board's Association, attorneys, and other educational interests to bring resolution to this matter. As a school district, we're doing everything we can to provide an environment where all students have the opportunity to learn and be allowed to express themselves as young members of society, Coleman said. The school board's treasurer was named in acting, its acting president Thursday. So, yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, I didn't transition until I was 27, and I'm sure a, lo- a big part of it was that it's not easy, and thankfully things are getting easier. There's more education out there. There's more support. There's more information. Uh, I can't even imagine. And that was, I was in high school in the 1990s and I started a gay straight alliance with a friend of mine and that in itself felt a little bit scary. And there was, there was a little bit of, I'd say overall, well, uh, there were some incidences, instances that were a little bit unsettling, but overall I didn't quite feel unsafe. And maybe that's easier for me to say now that it's the future and I survived it. Um, And I'm glad I started it and I'm glad that folks are starting those, you know, alliances and whether it's just to find support and especially in instances like this to show support to, for a student to go through that, you know, when folks transition, it's not an easy thing to do. And a lot of folks don't get it. And a lot of folks are, can be really cruel about it. And especially at at a high school age. And I think just even being at high school age, getting through anything and figuring out who you are and really holding on to that and demanding you be treated the way you want to be treated is really, really difficult. So I totally commend her for for going forth with who she is and for the folks and the allies for standing beside her. And I think this also just shows like how polarizing I think a lot of the, the world has become where it's really this idea of like whose side are you on and people who would just stand in the way of it's what a waste of fucking time. I mean, it's it's insulting in so many regards. And then also just at the end of the day, this girl wants to use the bathroom and people are not letting her do that. And what a waste of time. Imagine if she and like all other folks who've kind of faced that discrimination, whether it be on race or gender or anything else based on identity, if folks were just allowed this to, you know, self-determination and to do whatever they want and need to do to survive without being stopped, without other people questioning them. Imagine how much more people could accomplish in this world. Oh. <sighs> So um, it, it is good to see, you know, younger folks being able to feel comfortable enough to, to be out and to move forward with, with who they are. And I think that's great and will inspire more folks to do so. And I'm, I am, am very uh, much in awe of the next generation for really, for really standing up for themselves. And hopefully in some time this will all seem like, oh, I can't believe people acted that way. And yeah, people still do act, act biased in, in many ways. And uh, just have to kind of, I guess, you know, work through it and with the hope that in the future this won't be the case and folks will actually be able to do whatever they need to do to survive. So, yeah, there, there, goes, there goes that story. Um, I've got some more here. And, um, yeah, I'm really working on segues because I do feel like everything's connected and it's nice when there's more of a natural, a natural connection. So I've got a couple more stories coming up and some more music and I'll go into the next story and this is from a a change.org petition and um, I'm a little bit hesitant I mean I I sign petitions and it's I do understand the 
um, reluctance to believe in online petitioning and in terms of like quote unquote real action or what folks can do. But I think anything is, is, is great. And anything that kind of moves things in the right direction is a good thing. And one thing I don't like about this petition, I will say is that they show a photo of a, uh, ugh, this is a dude. Anyway, we don't need, I, I get that like a lot of online, whether you're creating an event or a page, you need to attach an image to it. And I quite often want to post things online and I really am, either offended or just I don't quite like what the image shows and I feel like it'd be great to get the message across if we didn't have certain images that we had to show. So this is from change.org and it's uh, declare white nationalists and KKK as terrorist organizations and this was submitted by Aaron Tyler. They're up to almost 3,000 uh, 3, signatures and I uh, urge you to sign and share. This is I think this is a really really important good one uh declare white nationalists and kkk as terrorist organizations petitioning and this is petitioning president barack obama and uh this says uh there are domestic terrorists in america they aren't muslims nor are they middle eastern they speak of intolerance and genocide they claim divine superiority over other american citizens while provoking fear through violence oh that was mother of violence i was gonna play that song after this story anyway okay <laughs> there we go. Okay, so yes. They speak of intolerance and genocide. They claim divine superiority over other American citizens while provoking fear through violence. While our freedoms are precious, the named organizations abuse the privilege of freedom of speech and exploit the opportunity to spread divisive propaganda of hate. Their sole desire and intention is to eliminate non-white, non-Protestant citizens. The Ku Klux Klan has been tolerated far too long. They openly encourage others to follow the example of a murderer. They have resorted to terrorizing black and non-Protestant citizens through violent acts for 150 years. White nationalists, a.k.a. neo-Nazis, carry on the legacy of the world's most infamous evil person, Adolf Hitler. While they don't make headlines, they are quietly working their way into our political system, altering laws in order to force their agenda through our government, they contribute money to political leaders in America to sway for favors. We will never get past our social, civil issues if we allow these hate groups to perpetuate and infiltrate our government, our cities, and our homes. Much like ISIS, these organizations use the internet to spread their ideology and indoctrinate our youth, as displayed in South Carolina last month. One white Lutheran American male killed nine Americans in two minutes on homeland soil. ISIS has killed four Americans in two years on the other side of the world. Who is the real threat in America? Declaring these organizations as terrorists will discourage membership, activity, and the impact these groups have on innocent people's lives. It will send a clear message that hate and intolerance are not acceptable in America. We may have made terrible mistakes in our nation's past, but we are, n we are not condemned to repeat those travesties. So again, uh, if you go to change.org, it's uh, declare white nationalists and KKK as terrorist organizations. And I encourage you to sign and share that petition. <sighs> okay. So, oh, going on to, oh, take a breath, breath, take a breather, take a breath. Uh, I'm going to play uh, one more song and then get into our, our last story of the day. It's 1.32 here in San Francisco. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more after that. So uh, here's a... Uh, uh, question. What song to choose? What song to choose? We'll do a... 
we'll do Take Me to the River by the Talking Heads.
Okay, coming back because there's more than one news story. There's multiple news stories, and if I had the time, I would just keep on reading them. So I'll do two more. Uh, and this comes from uh, realnews.com, uh, and that's a good independent news source. Again, therealnews.com, and this is the Movement for Black Lives National Convening. Uh, TRNN's Eddie Conway went to Oak, uh, Cleveland to meet the young people developing the critical mass for black self-worth and movement building. And this is um, September, September 11th, 2015. And uh, I am going to just read a little bit here. Bio of Marshall Eddie Conway was a leader of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. Conway was released from prison on March 4th, 2014, after having served 43 years and 11 months. He is currently a producer at the Real News Network. And Eddie Conway says, I'm going to be in Cleveland for the Black Lives Movement right and the Black Lives Matter thing that's springing up around the country. And what is this about? That's about self-worth. Activists from across the country travel to connect and share their experiences organizing for change. A speaker says, uh, this is, oh, this is a, a transcript. A speaker says, our people came across oceans to be here. Milo Jackson says, my name is Milo Jackson and I'm traveling here from Baltimore, Maryland. I mean, black people are being targeted. You know, we are being targeted in this country and I'm a black person. And watching your people being targeted and killed and their killers walking away from it or just feeling like they have the right to just murder us and get away with it, that's not okay. So right now to me and to a lot of people, especially, I mean, everyone here, this is the issue right now. And then the speaker says, uh, the most obvious concern of violence against our humanity through police brutality. There's evidence of that through the shooting and killing of a young uh, young 12-year-old Tamir Rice, the shooting of uh, Melissa Williams, and Timothy Russell, 137 shots. The speaker says, I think it's really, really beautiful to see so many beautiful black people walking around and sharing space and networking and bouncing ideas off each other. Albert Terry says, my name is Albert Terry. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. I'm with Socialist Alternative from our branch based here, uh, the Mobile-based branch of Socialist Alternative. I came here by bus, quite a long bus journey, 30 hours altogether, but it's well worth the journey. We don't have any high-profile police murders hit the news in Mobile, Alabama, but the suppression's there all the same. We used to see stories about people be getting tasered 13 times as they're being transferred between jails. You see, the police chief do interviews talking about how 70% of crime happens in 10% of the neighborhoods. He's justifying going through housing projects, kicking doors in. And uh, next, there's a speaker named Shay, and uh, Shay is from a, pro a Project South organization called 10 Mills for Real. And uh, they say, uh, basically, it's about the school SROs, which is student resource officers giving $10 million and more to the police instead of more important stuff like technology, driver's ed, healthcare programs for at-risk teens, and job training for classes. Conway says, others like uh, Cherno Biko attended to advance transgender rights within the movement. Cherno Biko says, we did a lot of organizing around four trans women of color who were murdered here, and their names are Cece Dove and Betty Skinner and Brittany Nicole Kid Sturgis and Tiffany Edwards, and so I must always bear witness for them. The speaker says, we are being shot down in the street, put in jail cells. I mean, we're being killed any way you look at it. So if you're being killed, whether you fight back or not, what do you have to lose? The speaker says, when the state sees power or the potential of power, it's either going to straight take you, incarcerate you, kill you. Sandra Bland, I think that was a political assassination. We finally see what we've been teaching these young people. Know your rights and assert them. And look what happens when you know your rights and you assert them. You're then disappeared for three days and then you're found. 
supposedly you committed suicide. I think that means they understand the potential of this. And the speaker says, the framing of a party is really needed. We've seen it in a bad way. We saw the Tea Party takeover, but the identity, <coughs> but the identity, right. We know that right now we're living in a two-party system that is failing all of us, right? And to have an identity ingrained in a party, I think people want to be a part of, people understand what parties are. And the speaker says, we will continue to be in the political forefront and what we will do, what will be, and that we will be a voice in our society, especially as we face a national election in 2016, especially as we continue to raise awareness around the presence of police brutality as indicated in the Department of Justice report. We will continue to sustain this movement and we will continue to address those systemic issues and work collectively to dismantle those systems of oppression. Conway says, the resources are drying up here. That's why you have all this mass incarceration. So yeah, it's not just about Black Lives Matter. It's all lives matter, saving the planet, and it's building the movement that's broad enough to cover the whole entire planet and address all the different needs. We can do it, we're doing it, and we've been doing it since they snatched us from slavery, and we'll keep doing it until it's done. The speaker says, we have nothing to lose but our chains. The audience says, we have nothing to lose but our chains. <sighs> so again, this was from uh, Real News Network, and this was a transcript uh, from Cleveland, and... Uh, uh, the speaker was uh, Marshall uh, Eddie Conway. So, uh, yeah. Uh. Okay. Um, going to head into uh, the 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 last article. Then uh, let's take a second to to bring up. And again, yeah, just seeing how. Um, important it is to, to talk about intersectionality and to speak up for, for everyone and to acknowledge that the systems that are in place and still people are still being murdered and people are still making excuses uh, which is <coughs> um, which is heinous and, and unacceptable and coming together to undo these systems and realizing that's what's absolutely what, what has to happen and what will happen so the next story then uh, comes from the UN, and this is, I think, a move in the right direction that a lot of other folks agree with as well. And this also comes from the Guardian. Uh, I'm gonna actually have a sip of water first of all, and I'll put on a, I'll put on some some music in 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 the meantime. Uh, oh man, uh, so I have a sip of water, uh, put on some music, and. Uh, uh, yeah, and then I'll get back to the, the last story, and then we'll be, <laughs> yeah, we'll be back here. All right. I gave away my fear to the river. Give away my pain to the wind. I give away my sorrow to the sunshine. I'm free again. I give away my fear to the river. I give away my pain to the wind. I give away my sorrow to the sunshine. I'm free again.
shame to the wind I give away my morning to the moonlight I'm whole again I gave away my grief to the tree folk I give away my shame to the wind I give away my morning to the moonlight I'm whole again to the wind I gave away my sorrow to the sunshine I'm free again I gave away my grief to the tree folk I gave away my shame to the wind I gave away my morning to the moonlight I'm whole again I gave away my sorrow to the sunshine I'm free again Give away my morning to the moonlight. I'm whole again. Oh, I love that song. Uh, again, that's Monica McIntyre. The song is the title track from Morning to the Moonlight. Ah, beautiful. So this last story, it's a good one. Uh, this comes from The Guardian. <laughs> that's where I get a lot of news from. Uh, and listen to this, everybody. Uh, U.S. should return stolen land to Indian tribes, says United Nations. Imagine that. Uh, uh, a little over 200 years too late, but uh, more than that. More than that. Much more than that. But anyway. Okay. Uh, U.N. correspondent on indigenous peoples urges government to act to combat racial discrimination felt by Native Americans. And this is written by uh, Chris McGreal. 
A United Nations investigator probing discrimination against Native Americans has called on the U.S. government to return some of the land stolen from Indian tribes as a step toward combating continuing and systemic racial discrimination. James <coughs> James Anaya, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, said no member of the U.S. Congress would meet him as he investigated... Uh, the part played by a government in the considerable difficulties faced by Indian tribes. Anaya has said that nearly two weeks of visiting Indian reservations, indigenous com communities in Alaska and Hawaii, and Native Americans now living in cities, he encountered people who suffered a history of dispossession of their lands and resources, the breakdown of their societies, and numerous instances of outright brutality, all grounded on racial discrimination. It's a racial discrimination that they feel is both systemic and also specific instances of ongoing discrimination that is felt at the individual level, he said. Anaya said racism extended from the broad relationship between federal or state governments and tribes down to local issues such as education. For example, the treatment of children in schools, both by their peers and by teachers, as well as the educational system itself, the way Native Americans said indigenous peoples are reflected in the school curriculum and, are, and teaching, he said. And discrimination in the sense of the invisibility of Native Americans in the country overall that often is reflected in the popular media. The idea that is often projected through the mainstream media and among public figures that indigenous peoples are either gone or as a group are insignificant or that they're out to get benefits in terms of handouts or their communities and cultures are reduced to casinos, which are just, which are just flatly wrong. Close to a million people live in the U.S. live on the U.S.'s 310 Native American reservations. Some tribes have done well with a boom in casinos on reservations, but most have not. Anaya visited an Oglala Sioux reservation where the per capita income is around $7,000 a year, less than one-sixth of the national average, and life expectancy is about 50 years. The two Sioux reservations in South Dakota, Rosebud, and Pine Ridge have some of the country's poorest living conditions, including mass unemployment and the highest suicide rate in the Western Hemisphere, with an epidemic of teenagers killing themselves. You can see they're in a somewhat precarious situation in terms of their basic existence and the stability of their communities, given that precarious land tenure situation. It's not like they have large fisheries as a resource base to sustain them. In basic economic terms, it's a very difficult situation. You have upwards of 70% unemployment on the reservation and all kinds of social ills accompanying that. Very tough conditions, he said. And I said Rosebud is an example where returning land taken by the U.S. government could improve a tribe's fortunes as well as contribute to a process of reconciliation. At Rosebud, that's a situation where indigenous people have seen over time encroachment on their land and that and they've lost vast territories where there have been clear instances of broken treaty promises. It's undisputed that the Black Hills was guaranteed them by treaty, and that treaty was just outright violated by the United States in the 1900s. That has been recognized by the United States Supreme Court, he said. Anaya said he would reserve detailed recommendations on a plan for land restoration until he presents his final report to the UN Human Rights Council in September. I'm talking about restoring to indigenous peoples what obviously they're entitled to and they have a legitimate claim in to, uh, claim to in a way that is not divisive but restorative. That's the idea behind reconciliation, he said. But any such proposal is likely to meet stiff resistance in Congress, similar to what was previously... It, similar to what to what 
similar to that which has previously greeted calls for the U.S. government to pay reparations for slavery to African-American communities. Anaya said he had received exemplary cooperation from the Obama administration, but he declined to speculate on why no members of Congress would meet him. I typically meet with members of the national legislature on my country visits, and I don't know the reason, he said. Last month, the U.S. Justice and Interior Departments announced a $1 billion settlement over nearly 56 million acres of Indian land held in trust by Washington, but exploited by commercial interests for timber, farming, mining, and other uses, with little benefit to the tribes. The Attorney General, Eric Holder, said the settlement fairly and honorably resolves historical grievances over the accounting and management of tribal trust funds, trust lands, and other non-monetary trust resources that, for far too long, have been a source of conflict between Indian tribes and the United States. But Anaya said that the only said that was only a step in the right direction. There are important steps, but we're talking about mismanagement by the government of assets that were left to indigenous peoples, he said. This money for the ins- for this money for the insults on top of injury. This money for the insults on top of in- the injury. It's not money for init- for the initial problem itself, which is the taking of vast territories. This is very important, and I think the administration should be commended for moving forward to settle these claims. But there are these deeper issues that need to be addressed. Whew. So again, it's constant theme is just undoing the harm that's been done and how does one you know how does one really do that you can't go back and change what's what's happened um and i think taking steps to at least alleviate and to undo some of the damage that is still ongoing is at least a step in the right direction so that's that's uplifting that they're moving in that direction and uh not unfortunately i'm not that surprised that some of the members in congress refusing to meet with him it's uh a lot of the folks in positions of power d- don't do a lot to help people, and uh, that's a that's a recurring theme. And uh, on the on the show, I always uh, uh, wrapping up. Uh, you know, every time I come in, there's like so much to talk about, so many different articles, and a lot of it's just happenstance. What do I hear from friends? What do I see online? What do I feel inspired to talk about in the day? What does segue into the other? How can I connect these stories? And all of this is happening at the same time, and the world is vast, and uh, we're still kind of living through the history because of actions that were done long before any of us got here. We're living as a result of it, and what can be done to undo the harm and damage that's been done and continues to be done. And I think about just marginalized folks and how many marginalized folks there are and different ways in which folks are kind of speaking up. And I always feel like there's always different, uh, not necessarily groups, but just different different people to 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 speak about i guess and to to bring up and i oftentimes feel there's more to talk about in terms of with reproductive rights it was an ongoing battle and i didn't read a story about that today and sometimes i don't read stuff about transgender rights and sometimes i i don't read um articles about people of color and what and there's just there's an ongoing and right now there's like the refugee there's like so much going on and everything is connected and uh Ideally, I would like to be able to, to, to get to everything and knowing that that's, like, that's impossible. Um, but I think it's really just important to understand how everything is connected. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, do, I do feel that every every time on the show. There's just so much more that, that one can get to. And today definitely felt like it got to a lot and did not have a guest and still, uh, which d- left more time for uh, more news and more topics. And there's just, there's so much out there. And 
I do feel like it's good to to appreciate the the good things that folks are doing to undo the harm. And I guess that's the theme of the show is folks working to undo the harm, whether it's it's uh, it's uh, calling out uh, the media and uh, people in positions uh, who the for the even if it's a it's a comedy show, recognizing that not a lot of the writers that two of the nineteen writers are are women and none of them are people of color noting that whether it's michael stipe telling donald trump to fuck off which is awesome whether it's the 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 un you know really saying hey uh we need to address the the problem uh that that tribes have been facing here in the country and how can we do that um it's folks kind of standing up together is uh how things are going to get done so i i appreciate I appreciate that, and I encourage everyone to continue doing that, uh, including, you know, grafting fruit onto trees, uh, something like that, something that's for the greater good. It's all about the greater good. So uh, in that regard, uh, I'll leave you with a song. Uh, there's a big block party that's happening here at Mutiny Radio uh, Saturday, which is tomorrow here from noon to 6 p.m., so come by the station. Uh, there'll be a lot of good things going on. Tell your friends. Bring some friends. If you've never been here, it's a great time to come check it out and see what we're about. And uh, def- definitely check out other shows here on Mutiny Radio. Um, later today, there should be Common Thread Collective, and hopefully next there'll be Women's Magazine with Global Val. Uh, she should be here shortly. Um, but definitely keep on listening and keep on doing good things and helping yourself and helping other people. And maybe uh, the world will be a little bit more peaceful uh, in the future. We can all imagine that. So ending with a song that I heard recently it's one of my favorites it's a it's an old favorite and uh yep that's all i'm gonna say about that again everyone have a good week thank you very much for listening and uh we'll be we'll be back next week oh yeah next week <laughs> um amy farrow weiss who's running the mayoral election some folks don't realize that there's an election going on here in san francisco for the mayor uh, the mayor's office. So Amy Farrah Weiss is running. Uh, Francisco Herrera is running. Um, Stuart Schaefer, known as Broke Ass Stuart, is running. And there's we're working on the one, two, three, so they can, the candidates can run together on a platform to defeat Ed Lee. And if a lot of folks don't like what's going on in the city, and a lot of folks don't, uh, recognizing that the mayor is in bed with a lot of the the big business and tech companies that are displacing a lot of folks and investors that are displacing a lot of folks. Because again, it revolves around capitalism, not necessarily tech itself. Um, so Amy Fairweiss will be in next week. Um, hopefully Francisco Herrera will also be here and Global Val and I are going to have a, a combo show. So that'll be great. So keep on listening and have a wonderful week and we'll be back uh, next week. Uh, take care, everybody. <laughs>